Today on Unleashcast, I talk to David Wilson, CEO and founder of Fosway Group. We talk about the latest nine grids that's involving digital learning and also learning systems. What's the difference between the two? A short history of the nine grids and also a look to the future. Can you predict anything? Should you predict anything? Let's find out with one of the most knowledgeable analysts in the market today. This is Unleashcast. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to Unleashcast today, CEO and founder of Fosway Group, David Wilson. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to be talking about um, digital learning primarily. But first, just for a bit of scene setting and some context, for those, for the few people who don't know, give us a quick overview of your nine grid system. Uh, hi, John. Nice to speak to you again and um, always happy to do so. Um, the So the nine grid for us is something that um, has existed actually for quite a long time in the background, but as a public product, if I can put it like that, a public analysis is probably for about since 2013, actually, in one for, um, with, with one form or another originally started in learning. It's a way of distilling the view and the inputs that we get around vendor capability and performance against a range of different segments. So, we um, we have five nine grids. Um, uh, we're going to talk about digital learning, but we also have a separate one for learning systems, which is obviously very focused on platform and software um, uh, proposition. Um, we also have others for talent recruiting and cloud HR as well. Each one of those comes from thousands of inputs in terms of distillation from typically actually from our corporate research network. So Fosway, from an analyst point of view, focuses on European headquartered um, enterprise type organizations, um, typically multinational, medium, large type enterprise companies or the mere end of global companies. And so we would do a lot of research with those organizations and pretty much I'm trying to understand, you know, what are they doing? Who are they doing it with? What works? What doesn't? Um, what do they think of them really, if I can put it in those terms? And we've been doing that for a long time, 20 odd years plus years. Um, and obviously that, the process around that is a bit of a monster for each of those 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 nine grids. Um, um, ultimately, for each of the or sorry each of the segments that we're focusing on, we get lots of inputs around that. What we also, of course, then do is lots of you know we do some uh, pub- public research surveys, we do customer satisfaction surveys, we do lots and lots of vendor briefings. So we also go to the vendors themselves and understand their view of capability, including functional capture around what they're doing, what their roadmap is, what their performance is customer referencing off the back of that and so on. So this is huge monster that is behind each of the nine grids and ultimately gets distilled down into five dimensions that we then measure graphically and put together then in a report with uh, what really split with a a lot of uh, market and solution trends, really talking about how is the landscape changing. So every year it's zero-based. We redo it every year. And um, the you know often the capability and the functional capture around that process changes as well as the market changes, new types of solutions and innovations come in. Um, and then what we're trying to distill it through to, as I said, is those five dimensions, which is performance, potential, presence, total cost of ownership, and trajectory. Um, and it, um, so effectively, performance is their market and customer performance. And, and the key thing we're looking for there is, you know, Who's getting bought? Are they delivering? And what's the customer advocacy picture around them? The potential really looks at their capability to support increasingly large enterprise organizations. Um, So that's not just 
functional, you know, complexity and scope and things like this. But it's also like, you know, who are their primary customer DNA? You know, where do, where's their sweet spot? Who do they operate with? Or what's their service ecosystem that surrounds them? Or are they able to execute globally or only in certain markets and so on? So each of them, and each nine grid is slightly different because obviously the the type of organization you're dealing with is slightly different. Um, for le- digital learning, which is what we're going to primarily focus on here, we're looking at typically organizations that historically would have been led by content or service. So bespoke vendors, off-the-shelf content vendors. Um, so they offer a range of capability. Pretty much most of those will offer plat- some platform, um, some content, some service capability. And, and really it's around, you know, how are they able to be your almost like a digital learning partner for you more strategically. So that's kind of what we're looking for in terms of criteria. So that's quite a deep description, but hopefully that gives you a, a lot more context around it. No, absolutely. Perfect. You mentioned it actually just then, but let's try and go a bit deeper on this. Within that, you've said there are, there are several separate grids. There are separate grids for digital learning and also learning systems. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that digital learning takes a kind of a more circumspect view of the vendor's solutions rather than just how it uses its platforms? Is that kind of the difference? So the key thing is typically somebody, a company, a vendor will be on the learning systems if their primary go-to-market proposition is a software platform. So it's a learning, an LMS, a learning experience platform or whatever. Their primary, a primary part of their business is to be a software company effectively selling a solution around it. So it's much more of a systems buy. Digital learning as I said, originally was, um, and it's actually evolved quite a lot over the over the years. Originally, we started looking at what we call bespoke e-learning producers. So people who would produce custom e-learning content for somebody on a service basis. Then we started to, that morphed into looking at bespoke content and solutions. So that would typically include, you know, platforms and portals and other related things as well. Sometimes, and, and then the service piece comes in around providing maybe aggregated you know, they might be a service aggregator, they might be a managed service partner, they might help you with administration of learning and processes and things. So it's, a, it's, it's quite, it, the digital learning is more diverse, but typically it's led, as I said, more by content and service with platform being part of the proposition. Um, pretty much every digital learning company, even the, all, the old, all the small niche bespoke learning companies from the past, they all had a platform because if a customer didn't have one, they had to have it to deploy their content, right? So that's one of the things where um, platforms is part of the mix, but we're not judging them based on the platform. We're judging them, as you said, more holistically based on that wider capability set. I've got it in my head now. Obviously, we've been through extraordinary times. It's been covered many times and probably will be for a long time because it's changed everything so much. But even given that, what are the results or are there any results and trends that you've seen in your research that have kind of surprised you. Some of it may have been predictable, a move to, you know, companies pivoting digitally, obviously. But is there anything that has really kind of been remarkable in spikes or trends or things like that that you've seen? Well, I think, I I mean, first of all, I mean, the pandemic was a massive game changer, obviously for most companies, even companies that were quite mature in the use of digital learning had a massive acceleration in the switch to it because, effectively, there was no other game in town. You know, you weren't going to run classroom training, right? So either it was done digitally or it wasn't done at all. So that transition, I think, has accelerated the whole market. And to some degree, we're still seeing that reflected in a gro- in growth, you know. Um, and if you, you, you see that on vendor growth, then you also see it in terms of obviously the proportion of corporate spend 
that spent you know, that ultimately has been done digitally. And I think the key thing, you know, a key key point, which is really important, is the majority of that won't go back. So even though now we're in kind of hybrid workforces and hybrid workplace, um, I, I still think that we'll still, you know, we'll still growth in high value, you know, face-to-face and blended interaction around high value activities. But the majority of stuff has still got to be supported or led digitally, especially with hybrid workplace. You don't know anybody's in the office, right? So you have to be able to still engage with them. Um, and that, so that transition has been really a game changer and it's moved digital away from just the low hanging fruit around compliance and kind of mandatory kind of stuff. Um, and then libraries of content that could support things to it becoming almost the main game in town. So that's a really big shift. And, and for the vendors, that's been a bit of a boom time shift. I mean, other than maybe March, April, 2020, when there was uh, nobody really knew what was going on from that point, you've just seen a really st- solid growth. And a lot of the vendors have been growing very quickly there's a load of uh, private equity money floating around in the background being invested in these companies as well. So you've also seen an acceleration of mergers and acquisitions, and that's really, really driven it forward. I think one of the key points, though, come back to the what's surprising, if that's the right term, is that a lot of the solutions that have been done with what I would call lowest common denominator stuff or fairly base level solutions. So push content online, do it that way instead run what was a face-to-face workshop on a Zoom or team session, right, without really re-engineering it or checking that it's effective. So I think the challenge for organizations now is really stepping up and doing higher value learning in a higher value way. And one of the reasons they need to do that is there is also massive digital fatigue, right? Everybody's been sat, if they've been sat working from home or whatever, everything's been online. We spend a half our lives seemingly in Zoom calls and Teams calls or whatever it is. There's real digital fatigue. That's a, really a factor, and it influences how effective you know the content and the pro- learning activities are as well. So, how do we move a- away from that, um, etc.? The other big piece I would say is around skills. You know, skill. The skill story is everywhere, um, and that's not just limited in learning. We see it massively within recruiting. We see it massively within HR and talent, and so on, and things like that. Skills is the kind of lingua franca now of talent, but it's also about how do we reskill and upskill organizations. It's about business agility and how do we really make the business more resilient going forward. So that's having a massive impact in terms of how people are looking at what learning is, right? So is learning as much about opportunities to develop as it is about doing courses, for example, and things like that. So how do we do that well? So that the, the, the underlying landscape around this is changing quite significantly. Thanks. I've got a couple more questions. I, I think the move from learning towards performance, if we can call it that, um, there are obviously lots of LMSs out there, LXPs, et cetera. But will you see yourself doing some sort of performance-based, performance management-based so we already look at performance management within what we call talent and people success. So the original two nine grids were learning systems and then digital learning. And then we added um, talent, what we called, we were originally used to call talent management. And then we rebadged a couple of years ago to talk about talent and people success because talent has got really disrupted, partly because the HR, HCM suites have kind of sucked the top off the kind of talent lifecycle story, but also because it's getting massively disrupted from inside. So performance management, obviously, which was probably for a lot of companies in their early days, was the anchor of how they looked at the talent story. But in reality, I think development is actually really the anchor of talent. 
And um, and that's really important for, for L&D, but actually the problem is it doesn't really own that story completely. And as I said, the skills part of it, the land grab around skills from HR, for example, is a good example of this. But yeah, performance, we look, so we look at performance as a, as, a, as a specialism area, if you like, within our talent and people's success story. The other thing is when you look at learning, we talk about three primary contexts that overlay learning. So one is around building strategic capability. The other one is around driving operational performance. And the third one is what you might call being the best me. What do, what do you want to know about? What do you want to do? How are you, how are you trying to develop, right? Which might be aligned to the company or it might just be, you know, it's personally orientated in terms of the goals. So it's, et cetera. So the focus on within learning, you know, with, and, and obviously therefore within digital learning, within the learning systems and so on, on how do you really support operational performance well is a really important thing. And what we've seen is a fragmentation within digital learning of the solution types, right? So we used to have classroom training, we used to have e-learning, maybe we had some video, whatever. Now we have hundreds of different things. You know, we have micro-learning, spaced learning, branch learning, collaborative learning, social learning, video learning, mobile learning, et cetera. So we've seen this. And actually, I think what's really interesting when you look at all these different approaches and all these different things, what are they really supporting well? But when you come back to your lens around operational performance, how does that drive the way that we engage and support that, right? And I know there's a lot, it's very trendy to about learning in the flow of work, for example. And that's, a, we've talked a lot for Fosway for the last 15 years around the integration of learning and work and how those things coexist. But actually what's really interesting is, I don't know about you, but I don't want somebody doing an important task for me if they're one video ahead of me in the YouTube list, right? So I think we need people that are competent to do jobs and perform well, but there is an opportunity, obviously, to also have real-time top-up around that to actually enable to do it. But that's much more focused on operational performance. How do I fix this specific problem today, et cetera, as well? So I think performance plays in that play, but it also plays in that wider talent and people's success story. And it's been very disrupted there. You know, the traditional performance management lifecycle has got pretty discredited um, and it was much more around dynamic, real-time feedback, coaching, and so on. So much to say on this, but I'm going to go for one final question, which is you've got an incredible amount of data and research, and it's been collected over, as you said, about 20 years odd, when you started the nine grids and similar. Are you confident that you could predict where anything's going or are you always led by the data have are you are you able to say what's coming down the the pipe in six months time or how how are these things going to change does the market ever surprise you or or, or can you look at what historically you found and make confident predictions about the next 12 months for learning or talent yeah i mean i guess it depends on macro context right would you predict would you have predicted a pandemic and the impact that that had on the market would you have predicted a war in Ukraine, uh, would you, um, I suppose you could have predicted the climate and the, the whole ESG agenda and how that would change the way that companies look at things and so on. I guess, um, so we're very data-led in terms of the um, the underlying um, analysis and, and ultimately what backfills in. It is a synthesis of that view, right? So vendors and I mean, another important part is that who gets included on this actually that's worth mentioning is Vendors are included in this because they're relevant to our target corporate audience. So they're either already the companies. So when we talk to our corporate research network, four or 500 companies, you know, who, who are they already using? Who are they considering using? Who's in their RFP process? And, 
and um, who are some of the innovators that could make that? And that last piece is quite important because we are constantly looking at innovation. And if you if you look at our strapline, we always talk about next gen HR talent and learning. It's about where is it going rather than the business as usual of the last five years. So we are trying to look ahead. I think we've been pretty good at predicting certain things um, and also puncturing some of the hype, right? One of the, one of the things that I remember um, some Nigel Payne or someone like that talked about us as a mirror, you know, we hold the mirror up to the industry a little bit to try and keep it accountable because it gets very hypey um, around a lot of topics. We are really trying to end, as I said, go back to what I said around the corporates. Who are they using? What are they using for? What works, what doesn't? What do they really think of them? And, and when you think about that, that actually gives you a really strong basis to kind of both view the reality of today, but a little bit of where are they trying to go? And a lot of our research process is trying to predict that. And we want to be both an advocate and an evangelist for that, that kind of few, those future paths, but also a critic as well. We want to be that critical view that holds, you know, to some degree says what is real and where's the substance here? Well, I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Every time a nine grid comes out, I'm always kind of fascinated by um, what's going to be uncovered. Uh, I know that we're going to be seeing each other at events at some point soon. And yeah. that'll, be, that'll be a great thing because it's been a long, long time. So, David, thanks a lot for your time today. And uh, I will speak to you very soon. Thank you very much, John.